The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your hosts, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com, and thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. If you work in the national security space, you know that nothing happens across this industry without funding and budgets and some movement from Congress. And if you're in this space, you certainly notice that the ability to pass a budget has been an ongoing issue. We've covered it in different ways over at Clearance Jobs. We'll talk about the National Defense Authorization Act, the Intelligence Authorization Act. We kind of follow that legislation. Not only does it show how we're funding these mission-critical functions, but also how policy is getting made, especially when it comes to the security clearance process. You'll find a lot of that actually in the Intelligence Authorization Act that's kind of turns into the policy that we see later. So following legislation really matters. I love to see companies who are both innovating and who are kind of explaining, demystifying some aspects of this work of actually getting things done in national security. And one of those companies is Rebellion Defense. One of those people is Jane Lee. I'm a big fan of hers and I appreciate her taking the time to chat. Jane Lee is the Chief Government Affairs Officer at Rebellion an innovative software development technology company within this space. So really appreciate your time, Jane, and for being willing to chat with me today. Lindy, it's always so much fun to talk to you. And not many people are as excited to talk about the budget like you. You know, I think it's just you and me, really. So. I'm a nightmare. Don't invite me to your holiday party. I already got in trouble for this. Like, are you talking about politics and the holiday party? I was like, this stuff matters. We've got to talk about it. So yeah, don't don't invite me to your holiday party. Maybe get the two of us together at a holiday party. We'll make some exciting things happen. So I want to talk about the elephant in the room. You've worked at the intersection of national security and Congress. So let's talk about that. The ongoing issue of continuing resolutions and Congress's failure to pass a budget. How does that affect the DIB and especially emerging or innovating contractors in this space? Let me talk about the CR first. The continuing resolution, which is a a stopgap funding measure, it locks in prior year policies, programs, funding levels for the most part, unless Congress makes specific exceptions. So I I do want to start off with that. That short-term CRs, you know, it's not unusual. Congress fights over about a trillion dollars in annual spending every year to help keep the government operating. So it's supposed to pass this budget by October 1st, but really, you know, that rarely happens. And I, you know, I, I took a look back at the entire modern budget history, you know, and it sounds like that would be a millennia, but really that was since 1974. So it's been about 50 years. And in that 50 year, five decade window, Congress has only passed, you know, the complete funding process on time four times in that entire history. And the most recently that was, you know, 1997. You know, I think what would be unusual and unprecedented, oh, and we'll have those decisions coming up pretty soon because the CR expires for the Department of Defense on February 2nd. So what would be unprecedented is a full year CR. And so why that's so damaging to emerging tech startup companies is that there's a new start prohibitions, for example. 
So uh, CR prohibits funding new activities, new projects. So it's tough for the department to meet new emergent needs when it comes to modernization. It's usually modernization readiness decisions that are placed on pause. And, you know, we don't have to guess at the impacts. What hasn't been covered you know, more thoroughly, so thank you so much for the opportunity to highlight this, is that there already is a letter that was transmitted to the appropriators. Now, the appropriators are the ones that draft these funding bills for Congress. It was from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on CR impacts, you know, especially from a year-long CR. And these are investments for example, that are critical to the Indo-Pacific you know, area of responsibility, including impacts to you know, activities around forward-facing, something called sensor-to-shooter capabilities, which is our ability to really take action and lead campaigns in the area from ISR, intelligence on down you know, to uh, leading these campaigns. There's long-range radars, hypersonic defense, and investments in the classified space. Again, all of those different capabilities that make it crucial for us to compete in that region. You know, when there are deferments of these investments, these are also deferred opportunities. And, and for startup companies, we're, we're just trying to find opportunities to compete and demonstrate our products. And you're dealing also with the real constraints like runway for funding. Unless you're prepared as a small company for these disruptions in advance, and if you don't make some real tough choices to make sure you have cash flow, being prepared for something like a full year CR or a shutdown, it can mean life or death for a company. I mean, there's so much it's at play here. The CRs, the full budget, the potential for a government shutdown. I think we get through those news cycles, right, where we keep covering and the amount of prep that that takes within government too and spending to say like we keep having kind of these prep scenarios for what how do we cope with a government shutdown it would be nice if that option wasn't always on the table every fiscal year so i know you talked about kind of the need for just maybe a dependent cycle in funding a part of your role is certainly to have those conversations you mentioned how the joint chiefs of staff of the military you know kind of weighs in on this what role does industry play in kind of advising or informing or leading and getting that understanding because you know we know from the big contractors have a, a lot of lobbying arms on that the smaller defense contractors or emerging folks in the space might not necessarily have a seat at the table, and it does affect you all disproportionately. Sure. In fact, we have, and I help lead, a group of about 40 American startup companies in the defense tech space. It's called the Software and Defense Coalition. In the past few years, we've joined with the National Venture Capital Association, the Alliance for Commercial Technology and Government, really to represent the innovation base and to push forward and an understanding of what the impacts are on industry. And you know, we also advocated for the passage of the defense authorization bill and the intelligence bill, which actually Congress completed earlier this month. There were some important provisions in there to help codify the defense innovation wow. unit, for example. They also lead a billion dollar fund that was authorized to help non-traditional contractors like Rebellion and so many others in this space actually scale. Because that, that is actually a gap in the market. So we help represent our views. And this is a public debate that is a cycle that, that's open to the public to inform it, and industry, community, groups to inform, starting at usually around the, the beginning of the year. And I have to say, you know, you talk to members, staffs that I know, you know, bottom line, too, they all want to represent their constituencies back at home and they feel like they need to cut the best deal. So I think, you know, next year, if, if there's three factors that, that collide, it creates a perfect storm for defense funding. If there is a full year CR, if there is a sequester, 
which also is extremely harmful because that's an arbitrary cross the board cut. If you have that specter of a shutdown, which I think there is a non-zero possibility of a shutdown, I think there's going to be a lot more demand for budget reform and how this current system doesn't meet, especially not to security interests. I mean, now you're talking my love language, some disruption in, in the way we do things. So like, are there things that are discussed in, as far as reforming the budget process? Or it, I feel like we spend so much weight talking about, like you said, doomsday, that the possibility for innovation get, just gets lost. Do you think there is some momentum saying, hey, this is broken. How can we actually reform this process and even bust open the calendar and do things differently? There is a discussion that was authorized you know, something called the PPBE Commission, to take a look at the defense budget process, which is a multi-year process. You know, there's a five-year development process, a fit-up, to create the requirements and then have the POM process, which is the, the internal services, attaching resources to those priorities. And really, this system has remained unchanged you know, since Secretary McNamara, since its origin. So there is a commission to take a look at different funding flexibilities, also different availability of funds, different colors of money, and providing some flexibility that allows more discretion, especially when you're talking about these major disruptions in the defense space, to make sure that the top priorities are provided for. So there is a methodical review of the current budget system that's happening right now. And so hopefully, again, you know, regardless of what happens next year, I'm knock a wood, I'm hoping that everything gets resolved. We, we, you know, we avoid a sequester, we get full year funding, and we all move forward. But there is a review that's coming up to take a look at the, the budget system. And, and you know, right now, the department does have certain flexibilities that were already provided by Congress, something called BA-8, which is colorless money, especially for software acquisition that cuts across different colors of money. You know, there's uh, operations and maintenance, which is one-year dollars. There's rdt and &E funds, which is two-year and procurement is multi-year dollars. And software development is in this binary approach, you know, where it's just siloed in these like mechanical processes. It's an iterative, continuing process for development that you should cut across, you know, between product development and sustainment. So there is a structure that currently is provided for that Congress is going to review to as to whether there can be more programs eligible for this colorless money approach. So that there are certain mechanisms that are in place to provide the department, you know, along with the reprogramming and transfer authority thresholds that provide them some discretion on how to use these tools. But again, I think if there's a perfect storm for defense funding, there's going to be, I think, an overall push for broader reforms, especially in the process of how Congress considers you know, next steps and how they, they deliberate these appropriations bills. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit about the hot topic of spending in Ukraine. We've got, you know, seen some chatter. There have been some decent op-eds on that. We're heading into another election year where things, it's great to politicize everything. We've seen a lot of that with the Ukraine funding and just kind of a general lack of awareness of where our defense dollars go, how much of that is actually directed into the U.S. I think people see military spending as something oftentimes it's going overseas and they see these other countries where a lot of that is actually building up our U.S. innovation. A lot of the innovation that used to hit the commercial sector would come through that. I think the way that our budget cycles are working now, the way that we kind of direct money, the commercial sector is having to innovate and then punt that over to defense. But maybe can you talk about the misconceptions around these spending bills or when we're spending money on military aid, what that actually goes to. Yeah. So for Ukraine assistance specifically, there are two major pots of money. 
One is the Presidential Drawdown Authority, under which the U.S. provides weapons that are already in its stockpiles. The other major source of funding and assistance is the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. So that funds longer-term weapons contracts. And there has been recent analysis, like you mentioned, taking a look at some of the investments that were made to Ukraine. It does show that the vast major piece of Ukraine assistance actually benefits U.S. defense manufacturers, jobs, and companies here at home. So it's spread out across 35 states, as I understand. Not only does this also protect our servicemen and women from engaging in the fight overseas directly, it does, again, from an industry perspective, an economic perspective, it does benefit our home base and the employment and and companies here. I think the Ukraine issue has a number of challenges. Number one, like you mentioned, there is that larger politics and optics issue. There's always that tension, actually. It's not very specific to Ukraine. It's what you mentioned, what's spent overseas and what's spent here or addressed here domestically. You know, on this issue, Republicans have tied funding support for Ukraine to border security. And I think, you know, whether you believe this is right or wrong, ultimately, that's the negotiating reality. The House is at an impasse here, and they believe that they need stronger border provisions for the Ukraine aid to actually pass both chambers. And there has been, I think, in the Senate, some progress made, like you indicated, to try to move the immigration and border negotiation forward. You know, I think, too, it's always difficult to move an emergency spending package when top lines haven't been negotiated or agreed to as well. So it's pulled into the larger debt debate. This is emergency spending, so above the spending caps for defense and non-defense. So it's, it's outside the caps established by the debt limit agreement. You're always going to see a little bit more scrutiny on emergency spending, especially from the right flank of the Republican Party, when those larger debates are happening. And lastly, there is a timing issue. Generally, something as emotionally charged as immigration and border security, you generally don't announce an agreement right before the holidays where there's a long break. Because when you have a deal like that, because there's going to be compromises made from both sides, it's difficult to have that out in the public sphere where members are back at home being pummeled with questions. So I wasn't surprised that there was a delay. They, they hadn't been able to come to resolution here on Ukraine spending. But hopefully there's forward progress. That was what was indicated over in the joint statement between Leader Schumer and McConnell. And that also, there's going to be additional negotiations in the new year. So I'm hoping for fast resolution in January. That does make sense of the trickle-down effect. Like when you can't get these big pieces of legislation or budgets passed, it does make sense that then the compromise on emergency spending or tertiary issues just becomes like, I mean, why do we expect there to actually be compromise on this when these things that we've had in process and in place since 1974 for a rhythm that should be passing this are so broken? So if we can actually get some movement on those, then it the net positive effects could actually, you know, circle down to these other types of legislation. I want to talk a little bit about the Software Defense Coalition, your work there, kind of some of these, why is it important to kind of for smaller companies like Rebellion to kind of band together and work together? How do you find some like compromise areas and focus areas to say, hey, this is like what's really important? Because I think innovation across this space is big. I think for us at Clearance Jobs, we always say, if you want to work in national defense, look at how big that job prospect can be. So we know a lot of our listeners are folks that are in the federal space or around it or interested in it. And we always say, hey, look at, you know, we love companies like Rebellion Companies doing innovative things. See how big this industry can be. See how all these different 
sectors can work together. So how do you do that through the different coalitions and cohorts that you've built out? So the Software and Defense Coalition, we're a new group. We're about a year old of 40 CEOs and founders of new American emerging tech companies and small businesses who pull together really amid the pacing challenge of China and, of course, the conflict overseas in Ukraine and what's happening in the Middle East to push for faster adoption of safe emerging technology into the national security space. You know, our warfighters who are defending our country, they deserve the best tools and technology. But there are some structural barriers in doing so, including getting pathways for buying readily available commercial options. You know, there's a tension sometimes between cots and gots and making sure that, you know, per statute, that if there's commercial options, the first order option isn't just to create a new government program, that they choose the commercial options where we dedicated the best talent and our own capital towards those products. There are also, I think, just larger barriers of entry. We talked about, you know, the budget instability to get into the department, finding opportunities to scale. So what we did was join together because, you know, one vendor alone can only do so much, especially when you're talking about these structural changes that you have to make. You have to demonstrate and justify your position. And you do that by joining together. There is strength in numbers to show that it isn't the interest of one company, but really the broader industry. And to make sure that we're joining with all different types of voices to show the breadth of this coalition. And quite frankly, there are specific impacts on our defense posture by newer companies not being allowed to compete and have a voice. You know, in spite of the department's focus on strengthening the innovation chain, small business participation in the defense industrial base has declined by 40% over the past decade. And DOD, so Defense Logistics Agency, and the Small Business Administration had statistics too, that moving forward, it's going to lose 15,000 suppliers So, you know, small businesses, defense startups, we're struggling with the uncertainty and the timeline specifically of defense procurement. So we all pulled together as a coalition. Actually, we were in several companies that founded this coalition. We were in a joint briefing with the House Intelligence Committee. And during that roundtable, without any coordination, all of those companies identified actually the same set of red tape bureaucracy and some issues that slow down tech adoption. So we were thinking, what can we do together you know, jointly? You know, usually startup companies, because we're so focused on product market fit, go to market, all those activities to stay alive, that we are not coordinating with each other. So what common market challenges are we facing together? And what can we solve? What specific recommendations can we provide to close those gaps? Talking about that, I think that's so important for companies, for coalitions to come together and gather together. Because like you said, if you're a smaller entity in this space, getting your voice heard really makes a difference. I think it shows, you know, the importance of we're in this for the mission. So even a lot of these emerging startup companies, you could be pursuing just commercial sector work, but you want the value proposition, the mission that's there from what's happening. And I see Rebellion doing that. I so appreciate you, Jane. I always see you out there championing this work and sharing your voice around how to improve this process. And I love that because there's a lot to complain about. I think in the government and the budget space, but you bring valuable ideas forward and you share them and you get your community rallying around them. So I love to see that. So I appreciate your time. Appreciate you sharing with us today. And thank you so much. Thank you.
Welcome back. This is Sean Bigley and Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. We're talking this segment about automated intelligence or AI and whether it has a place in the security clearance process. Lindy, I don't know about you, but I feel like every time I have opened the news during the past year, I have heard or seen something about AI. And before a year ago, I, <laughs> I didn't even know what the term meant. I never heard anything about it. I'm embarrassed to admit Clearly, there are plenty of people in the tech space who have been, you know, paying attention to this for years, but, and, and maybe I'm an anomaly, but it seems like from the general, you know, sort of public awareness, this is a really new thing. Am I the only one or is, have you been paying attention to this longer? I think the the permeance of it is significant and how we've seen it. If you've talked to a lot of folks in the tech space, they would not be surprised about what the past year has brought because I think we've been building up to this, but how quickly we've had that kind of the shift. I mean, now it's honestly, it's hard to look at something that isn't AI powered, right? It's harder to find something where you don't have an AI tool or application. We even see it in the job search process. Like, I mean, we went from within six months having a ton of different ways to build your resume, cover letter with AI, submit to job applications or AI tools that will apply to jobs for you today. So I think now we see this pretty extensively, like all things, the government can create these technologies, but if they can figure out how to use them for their own power and good, you know, will that come? But I think it's it's a conversation worth having when it comes to the security clearance process. Could we automate some of those things that right now you it's a very much a boots on the ground process. I think you could make a strong argument, an AI investigator coming to a clearance near you. I don't know how far away we are from that, but I, you could you could make the argument. And I'm always about making the argument. Is there an opportunity to innovate? Is there something here? And on the flip side, we know there's a ton of concerns around the DEIA issue, inclusion, accessibility when it comes to AI humans are building these tools. So there's the two sides. People think that a robot can make your interview and investigation less biased, but there's somebody behind that robot that actually could bake in a whole host of biases into that that don't necessarily make it better. So yeah, I'm curious what your, you know, are there things that you wish a, you know, an AI tool or solution would have been offered and, and available to improve this process? One of the things that has been getting some attention legally when it comes to AI is Yes, these things are machine generated, but they require initially inputs by a human. New York in particular has been kind of leading on this issue. They created earlier this year, passing the law, the New York Automated Employment Decision Tool Law. I've written about this at Clearance Jobs. It's a fairly onerous requirement for employers because now any employer that's doing business in New York or that's hiring people potentially from New York not only has to certify their compliance annually with this law, but they actually have to do audits. They have to hire outside entities to come in on an annual basis and audit hiring systems if they're using AI to prove that they aren't screening out applicants on some illegal basis, a protected characteristic or something like that. There's been a lot of criticism from employers saying, look, this is really no different than if we have a human sitting there reading it, they're going to have their biases, they're going to have their you know, potential candidates that they're looking for. And so why now all of a sudden, if we're having a machine do the same work, do we have to pay to have somebody audit the system when you couldn't really do the same thing necessarily with a human? And I think that's valid criticism. I think the flip side of that is when you're doing this to scale and we're talking about large you know, employers, you're getting thousands and thousands of applications every month 
it is legitimate, I think, to ask what are the inputs that are being used here to screen? And is there some bias baked into the system that might screen out people who were otherwise qualified for the job? You know, I think we're starting to see this a little bit in the continuous evaluation space. Obviously, that has kind of an AI component to it in a sense. It has to ultimately be checked by a human at the end of the day. There's a lot of false alerts that are coming through from what we've heard, a lot of like sounding names and things like that. And so you have a, still a human level to the process to ferret those things out. But I'm curious, I, I know you go to a lot of industry conferences and things like that. Are you are you hearing any chatter or interest in the industry or from the government about uh, a desire to kind of, you know, as you said, replace investigators with, with a, an AI tool or, or use some other you know, tools to supplement traditional boots on the ground process. Have you, have you been around the security industry recently, Sean? We're just not at the, we're not at the cutting edge. Like I work a ton with the IC, the defense industry, they're all over this stuff. And I think we have security is a very risk averse industry and for good reason behind that. But I think that's why, you know, the things you see now with like the Trust of Workforce 2.0 reform effort, there is some clashing that sometimes happens when it comes to reforming stuff just because getting government and especially government security to change the quote unquote traditional way it's done done things is tough. And so, you know, we joke all the time about how like we're working on a 1947 security policy framework, but that is very much the case. I think what we could see is just process improvements. I think for me, it all comes down to process. And that's where I think AI, there are definitely advantages there. There's definitely things that the government could do. I would love to see some large data models around the adjudication process. Because as we talk about bias here, like how much do we know about the process. And if there is bias baked into it now, I think AI could analyze a lot of that in a way that we are afraid to now because we try to keep the process very anonymous in the sense that we're not asking applicants to turn over a lot of demographic data in the security process, even though they do to some extent in the federal hiring process. But I think that's where AI has an advantage because you could do some data analytics around that that would keep folks' privacy intact and dig into some of this and get some interesting information. Because we have, as you know, as an attorney, an appeals process, I think it makes a good use case for that. I think for the side of it, at least, that does have that appeals process, you do have a human element aside, a judge that can look back and identify it. To your point, with things that seem like obvious places there that could benefit potentially are things like records checks. I mean, that's something that you don't necessarily need a human to do. Traditionally, that's been the way that it's done. You've had a, an investigator that's been sent out to physically look at an HR file, or you know, you've had a questionnaire that's been sent out to an employer to fill out. And those sorts of things, I think, lend themselves potentially or could lend themselves to AI. The question would just be, you know, where is the information coming from? And so, you know, you'd have to develop some sort of a pipeline where defense industry employers are, you know, submitting their HR files, for example, to some sort of government-run repository that can be, you know, scanned by AI. That obviously raises some privacy issues and some other questions as well. But from a big picture standpoint, I think, you know, that may be a discussion worth having. Is it worth the trade-off when we look at things like reducing processing times and, and things like that, that I think a lot of people in industry would be receptive to. So I'll be curious to see where it goes. It's definitely something we're seeing a lot more of in the news. And I think it's only a matter of time before this conversation uh, reaches our end. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance and Security. 
Please note, the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about the security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance and Security with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.